Our passage passage this morning is Psalm 100, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here, and um, I am looking forward to considering the psalm with you. But before we do that, would you please pause with me in prayer once again? Father, uh, we once again um, remember in your presence that you are here with us, that you are God, uh, that you are the one who made us, that we belong to you, and that one of the ways that you show us your love is by speaking to us. And not only by speaking to us, but by helping us to hear. And so that's what we ask you this morning to do, to please help us to hear so that you might shape us, that you might free us, that you might make us more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, my goal is to convince you that we don't take joy seriously enough. When I was a kid, I was taught to memorize the fruit of the Spirit in Sunday school. Maybe some of you had the same experience. For those of you not familiar with this particular type of produce, there is a place in the New Testament that's really practical. It basically says as a Christian, there are kind of two overwhelming forces that might guide us. There is the force that we might call the force of selfishness. And there's the force of God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit working in us, renewing us, making us more into the people we were created to be. And this passage says that wisdom is really about discerning when it's that force of selfishness so that we can kind of turn away from it, and when it's the Spirit working in us that we might lean in and allow the Spirit to continue to make us into who we need to be. And then it kind of lists, okay, so here's what the force of selfishness, which it describes as the flesh, and it lists a bunch of things, things we probably would expect, like rage and and envy and immorality. And then it gives us a list of what the work of the Spirit looks like, and it describes them as the fruit of the Spirit. And again, they're, they're words that we would expect, that one of the marks of the Spirit's work is love. And so then when we experience love, we should lean into that. Is, is patience in the face of suffering, is self-control. These are all things the Spirit does, does that when we see, we should kind of strengthen to the degree that we can. And one of the fruit, and I think this is a fruit we just don't pay attention to, that is listed in these verses, is joy. In fact, it's the very second one. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. In other words, if we want to know when the Spirit is at work in us, one of the signs is that he is producing joy. And I'm not sure we take that very seriously. I suspect, 
as I've considered my own life and what I see around us, that we are actually more influenced when it comes to the way we view emotions by Stoicism than we are by Christianity. See, Stoicism basically says the way through life is by learning not to want things too deeply. If we don't want deeply, we can find ourselves able to experience good things and bad and just kind of keep chill. And I think as Christians, we kind of feel like that's what we're supposed to do, that if we just work hard and, and do good things and, and not expect too much out of life, that's pretty much what the Christian life is supposed to be. But that's, that's not what we see here. The fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit is at work, is joy. And in case we miss that, we see that here. These verses that we have just read are a powerful summons to joy. And hopefully you caught that even in the very first couple of verses because what we have in the first couple of verses are just three commands and each of them are commands to joy. Look at them again with me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. There's the first one, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. That's the second one. Come into his presence with singing. Three commands which means Christian obedience in this context, our responsibility, our duty is joy. Now before we start feeling like, oh man, another burden, another way that I'm failing, it's important for us to understand that whenever scripture gives us God's commands, it is telling us this is what God delights in. This is what God is passionate about. This is what God's will for you is. And so when we see these three commands, it is telling us that what God wants, what God is passionate about, what God's will for you is, is joy. That our God delights in your joy. And, and it's not just polite joy. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, because we've been so influenced by some of this, when we talk about joy, we have kind of this restrained, calm, you know, it's kind of like a version of joy that maybe a bunch of people in their Sunday best around Sunday dinner might talk with kind of hushed voices about the joy that's within our hearts. And it's very calm and not too happy and very appropriate. That's not the joy that's being described here. Look again at those verses. What's the first thing that we're told? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Or another translation has it, shout with triumph. If you are a Cubs fan, you know what it is like to shout with triumph, don't you? I mean, you remember that moment, game seven, they were down 3-1, and it goes to extra innings, and you finally realize the Cubs just finally won, and you couldn't help it, you shouted. Or maybe... Maybe you're a golfer and you just sunk the most amazing shot and then just this thing came out of your mouth without you even realizing it because you were so stunned. Or, or maybe you applied for a college you were sure you were not going to get into. Or you applied for a job that you thought there was no chance and you got it. There are moments where there's emotion within us and it just can't be kept in and it comes out with a shout. That's what's being talked about here. That's the kind of joy. Serve the Lord, it says, with Gladness. Do you know where that word gladness most often appears, the Hebrew word for it? It's, 
It's in the context of celebration, the context of parties where there is dancing and, and singing and feasting, like, like a wedding. That's oftentimes the way this word is used, is talking about weddings. And we know what weddings are like. When weddings are good, there is just this tangible feeling of joy where you know, the new husband and wife walking back down the aisle after they have been presented and they are almost going too fast and, and there's just smiles on their faces and you know, like the parents are just like, you know, kind of doing this. And then later on, everyone's just so into it that they are dancing. That's the joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. When do we sing spontaneously? It's, it's joy. I remember when our first son, Timothy, was born, and I was just holding him because we were about to weigh him, and I just, you know that old song, John Lennon, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy? That just kind of came out of me because I was so overcome with emotion. This isn't polite, restrained, quiet joy. This is something caught in your throat because you can barely contain it, exuberant, powerful, overflowing, delightful joy. That's what the command is about here. And isn't that what you want? I mean, we are hungry. We are thirsty. We long for that kind of joy, don't we? I mean, I think some of us probably, through years of just experiencing difficulty, we've kind of almost forgotten that that's our longing. We've, we've become callous. There is a crust to our souls, but beneath that crust, if we are honest, there is still a desire, a longing to experience joy. And God desires it too, not for himself, because he is already joyful, but he desires it for us, and we know that because he commands it to us here three times. It's a fruit of the Spirit. God's will for you is joy. Now, if we can begin to actually see that, that can transform you. It can transform the way that you view God. God is not just the God of quiet, careful self-control. He is a God who laughs. He is the God who created dancing and singing. He is an overflowingly joyful God. It can change the way we view life. Sometimes we feel like it's almost inappropriate to desire happiness. That we think there's something selfish about that and it's better for us just not to expect anything in life. There's that stoicism again, but that's not what we're told here. That we were created to dance and to shout and to sing. Or for some of us to smile a little bit. I'm saying that because I realize that we have different personalities, right? And some of us, when we are filled with joy, we do all sorts of things like this. And others, you know that they're really feeling it if like a corner of the mouth just turns up. But either way, there's still that longing for joy and that's what we're made for. It also changes the way we view worship. The, it's not only appropriate to be solemn and quiet and careful when we are worshiping either on our own in prayer or together. There's also a place for dancing, for shouting, for clapping. 
You know, the very end of the Psalms, where you get to kind of like the destination, and you've been working through all sorts of different things, and you get to the conclusion, you get to Psalm 150, which we were reading before a little bit. You have these things like, praise the Lord with the sound of trumpet, praise the Lord with symbol, praise him with even louder symbol, which is kind of the ancient version of saying, if you want to praise God, you need more cowbell. There is this sense of a need for exuberance, because that's what God's will is for us. And we're commanded this. Have you ever been in a situation where you kind of can feel that you have the option to be happy, but you hold back? There's this story, James and the Giant Peach, probably many of you have read it as a kid. I certainly did. And um, James's friends, oddly enough, in this book are all different insects that have grown and become... Anyway, I won't get into how. But there's this one character, Earthworm, that no matter how good things are, he always figures out the, the clouds to the silver lining, right? He's always negative. And one of the other characters says this about him. Poor Earthworm, he loves to make everything into a disaster. He hates to be happy. He is only happy when he's gloomy. We have some earthworm, some Eeyore in each of us, I think, especially if we've lived for a while. And the reason is fear. We've experienced heartbreak. We've experienced disappointment. And so we're afraid to hope. We're afraid to be joyful. We want to kind of hold ourselves back. And really, these verses are calling you and me to repentance. Because God's will, God's desire for us is joy. Now, I might be making some of you uncomfortable right now because some of you are saying, but wait a second. Right now, that's not how things are. Or don't you understand that the Christian life is really difficult? And I want to say, absolutely, you're absolutely right. And hopefully you've been with us enough to know that the Psalms are filled with all sorts of emotions. That there is heartbreak, there is disillusion, there's confusion, there's agony, there's waiting. All of those are a part of what it is to live in this world. I'm not trying to diminish any of that. But what we need to understand is none of those are the final destination. None of those are where God is taking us. Yes, he is taking us through those things, but the final destination for all who are God's people is joy. Shout for joy. Serve him with gladness. Come before him with singing. And the rest of these verses continues to kind of drive that home. The next verse tells us that a key part of finding joy is knowing that the Lord is God. That's how verse 3 starts. Know that the Lord is God. And there's some, a couple things that are a little bit odd about that command, I think. One is that phrase, the Lord is God, it sounds really redundant to our ears. Kind of like saying, know that your dad is your father. I mean, it's the same thing, it seems to us. But if you, have, if you had your Bibles open rather than even the bulletin, you might know sometimes in the Bible it will say Lord with just normal caps, but sometimes all of the letters will be all caps. And when you have that in your translations, that's signaling that in the Hebrew it's not just saying Lord, it's actually giving us the sacred name of God, Yahweh. The name that God said tell, to, to Moses, tell the people of Israel, this is my name that you might know me and worship. My name is Yahweh. And so here, what it's saying is know that Yahweh is God. That is, know that the one that you worship, the one whose commands you obey, 
Know that the one you have given your lives to and have decided to follow, that one, he is truly God. So today, if we were to think of it through the lens of the New Testament, we'd be hearing, know that the God that we have gathered to worship, the one that we confessed just a little while ago, the one who is Jesus the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the one that we have given our lives to, know that that one is God. That one that we confess is our creator. He is the one that we belong to. He is our shepherd. Now, the other thing that's a little bit strange about that is that it's the command to know. Know that the Lord is God. We don't really ever do that, do we? It's not like our teacher in first grade said, know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. They just say 2 plus 2 equals 4, and now we know it, right? But that's because that's kind of a fact. Facts are just something that are told and then you know. But there's a different kind of knowledge. There's fact knowledge, and then there's kind of personal experiential knowledge. So there's the fact that you might be told that honey is sweet, but until you taste honey, you don't have that personal knowledge, just fact knowledge. Or when, when Jennifer was first pregnant with our first child, I had the factual knowledge that I was going to be a parent, but I had no clue until he was born and then later on that personal experiential knowledge of what it means. Well, in the same way here, when it's saying know that the Lord is God, it's not talking about a fact that you can just kind of spout out in a trivia contest. It's talking about something that you experience, that you know, that you comprehend deep within. Know that the Lord is God. For you to experience joy, you need to have this kind of knowledge, is what he's saying. And that makes sense because without that kind of knowledge, life is aimless and ultimately meaningless. There's a poem that I heard a number of years ago that has stuck with me. It was written about 100 years ago by a guy by the name of Stephen Crane. And here's how it goes. It's very short. It says, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. However, replied the universe, that fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. That poem, I think, captures the undercurrent of despair that I think we actually see around us. We're born into this world. We live for 60, 80, maybe more years, and then we die. And is there any point to it? Do we belong to anything bigger than us? Or are we ultimately alone, and when we die, we're forgotten, and it was all a matter of nothing? If that's what we believe, there is no possibility of real deep joy. But here's what the psalm says. Is, no, you need to know that's not the case. Know that the one that you are worshiping is God. That you know the one who created you. And that you belong. You belong to him. And he doesn't say, I have no obligation to you. No, he says, I am your shepherd. You are my sheep. And I love you. Know that the one we worship, Father, Son, and Spirit, is our God, and we belong to him. To have joy, we must have this, and not just know this as a fact, but to know this personally. So, quick word of application. If we want to be joyful, you and I need to be able to connect to God. I don't know a single individual unless I've actually connected with them and met with them 
And the same holds true with God. If we want to know that the Lord is God so that our heart might be filled with joy, that means we need to encounter him. That means whether it's together as a church or individually, we need to be able to listen to him. And we need to be able to pray. I do not think it is possible to experience the joy that we were designed for until we learn to pray to our God. Well, continuing on, verse 4 says, Enter then his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And the point I think here is the closer you get to God, the more we should be giving thanks and praise to our God. Now, the writer C.S. Lewis found this emphasis that's throughout the Psalms, throughout the Bible, um, hard for him to understand. Why is it that God keeps on telling us to praise him and to thank him? And it makes it seem to first glance that, that God is kind of this insecure God who needs his ego puffed up, who's always making sure that everyone follows protocol. But over time, Lewis came to understand that's not what's going on at all. First of all, he understood God has everything he needs. God is completely content. He does not need us to congratulate him for him to feel good about himself. He is God. And secondly, Lewis realized that therefore the reason that God tells us to praise him and to thank him is not for his sake, but for ours. Because, you see, the way that we express our delight is through praise. In some ways, it just can't, we can't help it. Think of, think of Michael Langer and Apple. He cannot help but speak about how awesome he thinks Apple is. I mean, he loves his iPad, and part of the way that he delights in it is through the way he speaks. Because there's a sense that praise is how we savor the things that we love, right? So this is how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And so the catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall come to know that these are actually the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify God, God is inviting us to enjoy do you understand when he's calling us to praise and give thanks, he is inviting us to joy. Or, or another way of putting it is that God wants to teach us that every time we think of God immediately as an association, we immediately think joy. Now there's this place in the Old Testament that I think not many people know about where Israel is commanded to party annually. If you don't believe me, look it up later, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Here's what it says. It says, every year you are to take a fairly significant sum of money and come to the temple or the tabernacle. In other words, come to make sure that you realize you are in God's presence. And then, well, let, let me actually quote it so you can hear. And then it says, use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, in other words, steak, 
wine or beer or anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Do you hear that? Feast and delight. Fill your heart with joy in that moment in God's presence so that you can come to realize more and more that this joy that you are feeling, that's what I have made you for. This is what you should think of when you think of me. You should think of joy. Because, you know, God knows that one of the easiest things in the world for us to do is to forget to connect God with joy. We probably remember that God is the God who commands us and that we're supposed to obey him. We probably remember that God is the one who's in charge of the world and the things that we experience are under his hands, which sometimes can be confusing because we don't know why certain things happen. Maybe in our best moments, we even remember that God forgives us. But how often do we remember that our God is joyful and that he made us for joy? Here's my proof of why I think this isn't the case. Let's just say you have just two minutes today to pray. You, you're like really crazy busy time and there's like you realize I really need to pray and you pause and you've just got two minutes. What's going to fill those two minutes of prayer? You will probably think about the things that you need. You know that God is in control. You'll ask him and that's good. We're supposed to ask God for things. Maybe if you've been feeling really aware of your sin, you might kind of acknowledge, God, your own sin and ask for forgiveness. That's also good. But you know what almost always gets left out in those two minutes? Thanksgiving and praise. Because we don't think that our joy is God's priority. And so God says, you need to understand that when you think of me, celebrate. When you come into my presence, come with praises, come with thanksgiving, come with savoring, come with joy. Friends, if you are like me, because I definitely consider myself in this category, and you kind of deprioritize praise and thanks, I want you to know that what we are doing is we are cheating ourselves of joy. We are sucking the life out of what life should be because we savor, we delight when we praise and we give thanks. Well, why do we praise? Well, verse 5 is where the psalmist brings it home. It's saying basically in these verses, let me tell you why you should give thanks and praise. Let me tell you why it's important to know that the Lord is good. Let me tell you why you should shout. Because the Lord is good. And when it's saying the Lord is good here, it's not just saying kind of the Lord keeps all of his rules. It's not that kind of good. It's, it's the Lord is good in the same way that maybe you've just tasted the most exquisite piece of cheesecake. And you say, this is good. Or maybe in the summer you are on the beach and the sun is setting and it is beautiful and your heart says, this is so good. Or, or, or maybe when you see justice being done. This past week I was hearing the, the uh, head of International Justice Mission, IJM, and he was speaking about their efforts to 
to basically stand with the poor, to diminish, to, to stop child sex trade, to stop, and, and at great cost, even some people were dying. And when I was hearing what he was doing, what he was passionate about, my heart said, this is so good. Or maybe the goodness that we experience when there's someone we think highly of and we realize that that person loves us. When it says the Lord is good, it is saying the Lord is delightful. The Lord is beautiful. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is love. The Lord God is life itself. That's what it means when it says, for the Lord is good. And it says his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. If you this morning are one who has placed your faith in Christ, you've surrendered your life to him, what this is saying is that God's love is so thoroughly, absolutely, completely committed to you that it cannot be undone. It goes deeper than you possibly can imagine. Our God's love for you is is deeper than time itself. Before this world even existed, God already knew your name and he loved you. It goes deeper than our failures. As much as we will forget God, as much as we will do things that we feel deeply grieved and ashamed about, as much as we betray God, God's love doesn't change. It is not altered. It continues. God's love for you goes deeper than even you possibly can imagine because we know that God gave his very own son unto death because of love for you. And we will never understand what that means. Our Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. So give praise, give thanks, know that he is God. Rejoice! As I conclude, I just want to make note of one more thing. At the very beginning, when it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's not, make a joyful noise to the Lord, O ye people who believe in him, that small portion of the world that are Israel or are the church. I mean, do you see what it says? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Which is saying God's desire, his passion, is that the whole world rejoice. And so I want to speak to some of you this morning, if there are some of you this morning who are here and have not yet entrusted your life to Jesus, you have not yet surrendered, there could be any number of reasons why that's true, and I don't want to trivialize them because I know that some of them can be really significant. But I want you to understand that when Christ is calling us to himself to trust him, what he is doing is he is calling us into his joy. His desire for you is joy. And maybe even this morning you are hearing him call you to, and I want to, with all my heart, invite you to listen to that call. Because our God, when he commands us to shout, to serve with gladness, to come before with singing, it's because he is a God who delights in joy and he wants our joy. And so I want to give us a moment now, 
Um, you, it's just five verses. You can look them over again quietly. But when we hear God's word, it's always important for us to take a moment to listen. And so let me invite you just to take a moment to listen, to, to hear what God is saying to you. And maybe as you're listening, he will lead you to confess areas that you've been like earthworm and you've been holding on to sadness when you can rejoice. Or that you're just not yet willing to trust yourself to God. Use this as a time of prayer and confession, then I'll lead us in a moment. But let's take some time in silence first. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you, and I know I certainly confess this to you, that while a part of us wants to believe that this is true, that you are a God of joy who desires our joy, it is something that a part of me doesn't yet really hold on to. And for those of us for whom this is true, Lord, we confess our doubt, our lack of faith, our lack of willingness to trust you. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would open our hearts to the reality of your gladness and goodness, that you might free us to experience the joy that you have made us for. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone, the new life has begun. Know that in Jesus, God embraces you, forgives you, and strengthens you to live a renewed life. Thanks be to God.